more than 4,000 graduate students in over 80 different programs of study. You guys are sort of all over the world, it seems like. It's kind of mind-blowing when you think about it. Here on Inspiration Dissemination. there's actually photographs of this data set stretching over a much longer period of time. They're now converted into basically mathematical shapes, and we can now analyze the statistics of this shape. Good evening, listeners. Good evening, listeners. Good evening, listeners. You're tuned in to 88.7 KBVR Corvallis. It's currently just after 7 p.m., and on a Sunday, that can only mean one thing. It's time for another episode of Inspiration Dissemination. I'm Adrian Gallo. And I'm Lisa Hildebrand. At Oregon State University, we have more than 4,000 graduate students in over 80 different programs of study. And here on Inspiration Dissemination, we feature the research and personal stories of one of those students each week. If you're a graduate student at OSU and you're interested in coming on the show, or you just want to find out more about all the awesome things going on at Oregon State, check out our blog at blogs.oregonstate.edu slash inspiration, where you can find out all about our up-and-coming guests and links to our Twitter and podcast pages. Inspiration Dissemination is recorded live, and tonight we are lucky to be joined by Rebecca Mostow. Welcome to the booth. Thanks for having me on. We are so excited. For listeners that are unaware, we, in about 48 hours, found out about Rebecca's research and very quickly uh, got her to come into the booth because your research has a personal connection uh, and research connection to the new Dune film that just came out. Yeah. Um, so first, you read the reread some of the books. So yeah. can you first set the stage? Well, we're going to get into your research in a second, but help us understand how uh, how the books are set up and why this is such a cool um, sci-fi universe to kind of dive into. Yeah, I love starting conversations about my science with a little science fiction. <laughs> um, yeah, so Dune is a story all about a planet that's actually called Dune or Arrakis, right? That is a planet that's entirely made up of these inhospitable sand dunes. Um, and it was inspired by a trip to the dunes on the Oregon coast. So Frank Herbert, the author had a chance to go out to the dunes near Florence, Oregon in the late 50s. And what he saw out there was this huge dune sheet. It's actually the largest dune sheet in North America. And he saw it and he was amazed by it. And he, in his head, came up with this idea of what if instead of just a small dune sheet on the coast, it was an entire planet made up of dunes. Um, And my research here at Oregon State is about those dunes, the dunes that stretch all the way from Southern Oregon all the way up into Southern Washington. And the kind of time that Frank Herbert went to the dunes and saw the dunes was kind of a very interesting time in terms of what was happening Mm -hmm. in terms of the government and dunes. Yeah. um, Right. Like what he was seeing was kind of part of the inspiration, not just the, the dune itself, but actually what was happening in them. Yeah, absolutely. Yeah. So Frank Herbert went out to the dunes. I think it was 1957. It's the late 50s. And he saw these like huge sheets of roving sand. All of the journal articles from that time, he was a journalist. And so he was writing something like this. But they're all like (laughs) sand ravages community or like (laughs) sand threatens another railway. And the fact is that the dunes in Oregon, the natural state, 
is this like constantly shifting, super dynamic environment. Um, and that's what Herbert saw out there. It was like tons of constantly shifting sand. And starting in the late 1800s and all the way up through around the 1960s, done extensively, the government, both the federal government and state governments, were planting grasses in order to try to stabilize that shifting sand. Um, yeah, and so Frank Herbert saw these grass plantings all along this area and imagined like not just a world where there was like constantly shifting sand, but also what people might do to try to stabilize that sand and make it a more habitable environment. Mm. Going back to the sci-fi series, it is a very inhospitable planet. Yeah. <laughs> I mean, uh, I think they, it gets up to 140 degrees Fahrenheit very regularly. Uh, the dunes are constantly shifting. So the inhabitants of the world are they're very resourceful in the way that they uh, kind of live in a subterranean world. Um, before we get there, I do want to uh, talk about one character in particular from the sci-fi series, um, Parto Kynes. T <laughs> tell us about this character. Yeah, I mean, I think it's pretty predictable. This is the character that I most identify with in the books. Because, <laughs> uh, yeah, you're talking about the ecologist, and I am, in fact, a dune ecologist. So well, I feel pretty connected to them. But, yeah, Parto Kynes, the idea is that this is a character who came from, uh, you know, whatever the Earth example, whatever the, the place where all of the colonists are coming from. So Kim's not from Arrakis and comes to the planet and starts to imagine, like, how could we stabilize these dunes and make water more available? Mm -hmm. um, how could we sort of terraform this planet using plants that I know from my homeland? Um, and there's a really interesting connection there, right? So we're talking about uh, somebody who's trying to colonize a new planet, introducing plants from their homeland to try to make the planet more habitable for them and their, you know, the rest of their people. And that's exactly what happened out on the Oregon coast, right? The Oregon coast has been inhabited by people for thousands of years, right? There's native people from here who live on the coast and lived on the coast um, and didn't have any trouble with the shifting sand, right? But it's the European <laughs> colonists who came and said, like, oh, no, this sand is ruining our railways or whatever, and we need to introduce grasses that are from Europe and from the east coast of the United States, mm -hmm. these grasses that were from their homelands, they introduced them in order to stabilize the sand and make the environment more more habitable for their people. Right. In comes you and your research, yeah. because the planting of those two um, two beach grasses, the, the European beach grass and the American beach grass, which comes from the east coast of the United States, has has had some effect, has created something new, right? Yeah. That's what your research has has shown so far. Yeah, so I work in Sally Hacker's lab here at Oregon State, and her research team has been studying the dunes for a couple of decades now. And what they've discovered is, yeah, there were two species of beach grasses intentionally introduced to Oregon and Washington, American beach grass and European beach grass. Um, then that's Amophila arenaria is European beachgrass, and Amophila brevilligulata is American beachgrass. A mouthful. Yeah. <laughs> Amophila, a mouthful. Yes, indeed. Um, We're just going to stick with the um, American and yeah. the European beachgrass. Let's yeah. do the common name. Yeah, so those grasses were introduced, and Sally's lab has shown that the two species actually have different effects on the dunes. But what they do is that they these grasses stabilize the dunes by collecting and trapping wind-blown sand and keeping it from flowing inland. And they build the tall, linear four dunes that are so almost iconic on the Oregon coast now, right? These like vegetated dunes. 
Um, Anemophila arenaria is more present in sort of Oregon and California. Anemophila brevuliculata is more dominant from sort of northern Oregon up into Washington. And these two different species of grasses build slightly different shaped dunes. Mm-hmm. Amophila arenaria dunes tend to be taller and pointier, and Amophila brevuliculata dunes or American beach grass dunes tend to be lower and um, sort of wider. Mm-hmm. Yeah, so there's these two different species, and they build different types of dunes with different impacts for the way that those dunes serve as sort of barriers, coastal protection for the human communities that live behind them. So returning turning the clock back just a little bit yeah. uh, r- remind me what else the the federal government state government county agencies did mm-hmm. in the 1950s 60s and so it, they planted more than just beach grass but they planted many uh, species together with the intention of trying to protect the coastline or protect the coastline but also prevent sand from moving like that was their primary objective because of course, sand is ravaging the communities. Mm-hmm. Right? Exactly. So um, first, take us back a little bit and, and tell us yeah. a little bit about the plant ecology and, and how the plants that they planted work together. Yeah, absolutely. Yeah. So it was a pretty cool planting scheme. And I'll say that like it was very successful. So the planting <laughs> schemes involved planting a beach grass species, so either American beach grass or European beach grass close to the ocean, so on the beach area. And then behind them, planting those grasses with some kind of nitrogen fixer that would help to develop the soil. So, And a, a nitrogen fixer takes the nitrogen from the atmosphere that plants otherwise cannot access, puts it in the ground. It's a slow-release fertilizer. Really fantastic. Thanks, soil scientist. <laughs> Adrian yes. coming in with the soil <laughs> knowledge. Yes. Yeah, so the nitrogen fixers that we talk about are, um, it was scotch broom, which is maybe a plant that people have heard of, another plant that became extremely invasive on the coast. For those that haven't heard of scotch broom, can you let us know a little bit about the difficulties? Yeah, the challenge with scotch broom. I mean, <laughs> the main reason that we think of scotch broom as so negatively impacting on in the Pacific Northwest is that it outcompetes dug fir seedlings. And so it's really negative, has these big economic impacts on timber. Um, but yeah, scotch broom is an invasive plant that spread. It grows in like all different kinds of soil types. It has this incredible seed bank. Um, where it makes tons of seeds and then... Very and, hard to get rid of. Yeah, it's really hard to get rid of. It's actually, I mean, if you if you ignore all of that, it's a lovely plant. <laughs> <laughs> okay, I'm going to out myself here. I did not know scotch broom or its negative impact. So thank you for explaining that. If, so if for anyone, just me. <laughs> if, if you're a forester, it has a negative impact because mm-hmm. your objective is, you know, to grow fiber, to grow Absolutely. trees. Right. If, if, you know, if, if you think, oh, well, nitrogen is most the most commenting, limiting nutrient in ecosystems, forests and otherwise. So if it can... <laughs> fix nitrogen from the atmosphere into the ground that plants can access oh well that's a great thing then you know more plants can be more productive absolutely too bad for doug fur though yeah (laughs) yeah so the planting scheme yeah it's like beach grass by itself close to the ocean then beach grass with a nitrogen fixer so with mostly often with scotch broom or sometimes with a lupin species and then further back all three of those um, all two of both of those with a tree so usually a shore pine And the idea was to build a coastal forest Mm. that would sort of stabilize the land and stabilize more and more land as more sand was deposited and sort of move the coastal forest forward. Um, And this, I would say, 
was pretty effective and is, you know, it's pretty cool ecology when we think about it, right? They developed a successional planting and it, it really worked. It moved the force forward. Right, this right. This is terraforming. So, this is terraforming. Yeah. Absolutely. Yeah. There's our <laughs> dune connection. <right? laughs> yeah. And it's, yeah, I mean, it's, yeah, successional like forests, like that is a natural thing that occurs like after a fire occurs and, you know, all the plant life kind of slowly starts to regrow and in its successional stages. So it is, I guess, yeah, um, you know, the different, I guess, organizations, groups, government that mm-hmm. that kind of came up with that scheme and planted it, like, you know, used knowledge from the environment. And like you said, did a very successful job, <laughs> almost too successful because, yeah. yeah, as you've mentioned, some of these species kind of, yeah, outcompete the ones that maybe you want to keep around. Um, and, oh, Adrian. So it's successful if it's from the perspective of uh, the federal agencies that were tasked with stabilizing coastal communities. Mm -hmm. It's successful if you're a homeowner on the coast and you don't want to have sand in your home. It's successful if you're the railroads and you don't want, you know, your equipment to be ground down by sand. It was successful in those areas. Where has this possibly come at a um, kind of caveat or breakdown yeah. in, in other areas. Yeah, absolutely. So what you're pointing at is that these beach grasses were planted um, up and down the coast in coastal communities, places where people were living. Um, and they really took to the coast and they spread outside of the areas where they were originally planted. And now the beach grasses are the dominant grass all along the coast. So not just like for, you know, not just in Cannon Beach, right, where there's people living behind the dunes, but also in Fort Stevens State Park, where there's like not people living there, right? Um, so all along the coast. And what happens is that these invasive grasses or these non-native grasses, they outcompete the native plants. Mm. Our native plants are adapted to the native system, which is like a constantly shifting sand um, and these smaller, more mobile dunes. So they outcompete native plants and reduce the biodiversity, the plant biodiversity, and they also reduce the habitat for mostly for native birds and other animals. So there has been some really dramatic negative impacts, specifically on the streak-horned lark, and the western snowy plover is the one that we think about a lot on the coast. So the western snowy plover is this extremely cute little shorebird <laughs> that really only likes to nest in open sand, and it makes these very sweet um, sort of shallow nests where it lays its eggs in open sand, and it won't nest where the beach grass is growing really densely. And so that and other factors have dramatically contributed to a decline in the snowy plover. Mm. Um, so um, just to make sure I remember the beach grass type, so the American beach grass type, that is the type that builds relatively wide sand dunes. Mm-hmm. Um, it grows in very sparse kind of patches. So mm. uh, It this- grows fairly densely, yeah. It's slightly switched. confusing. I'll just say as an aside about the common names, right? So there's two non-native plants, European beach grass and American beach grass are their common names. Our native grass, native to Oregon, is called American dune grass. Mm. And so that has contributed to some confusion (laughs) in the past. That's lamus mollus for the botanists at home. Uh, Yeah, so American beach grass tends to build wider, shorter dunes. Mm. It's the reason that it does that is that it grows more laterally. It grows sort of out to the side instead of growing up as much. And these grasses spread with these underground stems. They're not just like one stem and then sending out seeds, right? So American beach grass grows more laterally and builds wider dunes. And European beach grass grows more vertically and so builds taller, steeper dunes. Mm. Uh, clearly a very, a very complicated, I, I like, 
problem here with like a lot of balancing on either side, like Adrian kind of summarized quite well, you know, benefits to coastal communities where stabilization of dunes is beneficial. But obviously, we're also seeing some of these negative effects on other native plants mm-hmm. um, and native birds and other animals that use the dunes. And on top of this, there is another factor that has come into play, um, which um, kind of leads us more into your research, which is that these two beach grasses, American beach grass and European beach grass, have decided to hybridize. Yes. <laughs> tell, yeah. us, tell us about that. Yeah, so we recently discovered that these two non-native grasses are hybridizing on the coast. And what that means is that they're reproducing sexually, right? So one of those grasses is pollinating another of those two different species and producing a seed that grows into a plant. Um, and... Yeah, it's a pretty interesting and unexpected discovery on the coast. Although these two grasses are in the same genus, they're they're closely related. They're not actually that closely related. Mm. Um, when we look at their systematics, when we look at their evolutionary history, mm. they're pretty far apart. So it is surprising that they would hybridize out here. Um, and yeah, we found the hybrid all along the range overlap of these two species. So everywhere where we find both species we're finding uh, significant amounts of this hybrid. I just got back a couple weeks ago from another field trip where we found another 50-some patches of hybrid. So there's a lot of it out there, it turns out. How many, How? Where? what's the spatial extent and how do you know, I mean, did you were you able to walk across every foot of the Oregon coastline or, you know, just how widespread are are the hybrid species? Yeah, so... The hybrid occurs in the overlap between the two parent species. So Amophila brevilegulata, the American beach grass, that grass is the dominant beach grass in Washington and in a little bit of northern Oregon. And European beach grass, Amophila arenaria, that grass is dominant in most of Oregon and California. And they co-occur, they overlap in their range just in northern Oregon all the way up into sort of all of the southern Washington um, sandy beaches. And we found the hybrid all in there. Mm. Um, But I will say there's so much coastline that we haven't been able to cover. And every time I go to the beach in that range overlap, I find more hybrid. Um, And I actually like was on a vacation where I went up to Washington (laughs) and I was like, don't look for it. And I found some just as I was walking along the beach. So there's a lot of it, especially in those southern Washington beaches, which is why Sally and I have partnered with Um, Oregon Shores Coast Watch, a nonprofit on the coast, to build a community science project where we're searching for the hybrid. And what that means is I've been training people on how to identify these grasses. And I'll just like, as an aside, I say that I know that grasses have a a reputation of being like really hard to identify, (laughs) but these ones are not as tricky. There's like a little special trick that we use to identify them. So any lay person can do it. Um, and yeah, I've partnered with Oregon Shores Coast Watch to start training people along the coast how to identify the hybrid and, and encouraging people to get out and do it. And actually, anyone can learn to do this. There's an iNaturalist project page. So iNaturalist is just an app that you can use to identify plants and animals and fungi that you see in the world around you. Mm-hmm. And there's a project page on iNaturalist that has a ton of info on it, including how to identify the beach grasses and... Um, Lots of sort of observations where you can see where it's been found before. So I'd encourage anybody listening to go 
go check it out. Yeah, we will um, be posting the link to that iNaturalist page, a, a bunch of different resources, but we will be posting that link on um, the blog about um, Rebecca's research that awesome. we will post at some point, as well as in our show notes. Um, and so like you said, listeners, do not be deterred. There is a trick to identifying um, this um, this hybrid um, beach grass. And yeah, help help out, you know, as as you mentioned, Rebecca, it it you found it everywhere where the two beach grasses overlap, mm-hmm. but we still don't know exactly the range extent of this hybrid. So yeah, listeners, get onto iNaturalist and help Rebecca and her lab um, identify the whole range. Because there is actually someone in your in your lab who will be doing kind of a spatial analysis. Right? Yeah, absolutely. So my lab mate, Risa Askaruth, actually did a ton of fieldwork this summer looking at where the hybrid is. So returning to all of the sites where we know the hybrid exists. And then searching in those areas to see if she could find more. And she found a lot more hybrid. And she also is gathering the preliminary data to understand um, how the hybrid is impacting the shape of the dunes. Mm. So I just said that, you know, the two parent species build different types of dunes. And so a big question we have in our lab is like, what kind of dune does the hybrid build? Um, And can we look at, you know, I told you that the two parent species the way that the grasses grow impacts the shape of the dunes. And so can we look at the way that this hybrid grass grows and predict how it might impact dune shape? So Risa's taking that on and is doing a phenomenal job and uh, is finding a lot of hybrid on the coast and would love your help looking for more. Yeah, get on it, listeners. Yeah. I was going to ask, are there any theories in the lab that you can share with what you think this hybrid species will do to dune structure and how it might change or not yet? Absolutely, yeah. I mean, so... We published a paper showing that, like proving that this is in fact a hybrid, and I did that using genetics, but I also looked at the morphology, so the shape of the plant. And one of the things that we found is that the hybrid is taller than either parents, parent species pretty significantly. Um, that's not unexpected, right? Like that's called hybrid vigor, which is the fact that hybrids are often like bigger and stronger. First generation hybrids are often a little bit bigger and stronger than their mm-hmm. parent species. Um a mule is like the classic example of that, right? A donkey and a horse crossed as a mule, and it's like a better pack animal. Um, so, yeah, that's what we're looking at with our hybrid. It's actually taller than mm. either parent species. Um, and that has an impact on how much sand a grass accumulates or accretes. So a taller blade of grass is going to accrete a little bit more sand, and so that might affect the dune shape. Mm. Um, yeah. Okay, so I'm going to, you know, Go to a magic sci-fi future that I won the lottery and I was able to buy a house on the coast. And I find out about this hybrid grass species that it's taller. It could probably hopefully stabilize, you know, the sand dunes outside my house a little bit longer. So to me, I'm thinking, well, isn't this fantastic? Now I can, you know, stabilize my coastline against the rising seas of climate change. Uh, you know, I, I can hold back some vegetation. This sounds great. If my objective is mm-hmm. to stabilize a coastline, is, is this a winner? I think the first thing I would say is like, uh, in ecology, we need to beware of unintended consequences. <laughs> uh, I think the spreading of these two, uh, the American beach grass and European beach grass along the Oregon and Washington coast is this great reminder that like, even when we have a great understanding of how ecosystems work, there can always be these big unintended consequences. So I would say, no, do not go play with the hybrid. <laughs> we do not know how it's going to impact the dunes yet. And we don't want to introduce it into new places. But I think you're right to point us to 
the tricky choices that landowners and land managers are making on the coast right now, balancing the need to protect homes that are already, you know, have already been developed on the coastline and protect them by continuing to stabilize dunes, but also the important mission of landowners and land managers to protect the biodiversity of the coast in any way that we can um, and think about what is the coast, what is the Oregon coast going to look like in 10 years, in 50 years, in 100 years? And can we think about building systems that are that might be around to it's, see those changes. It's worth mentioning that both the snowy plover and the, remind me of the second one? Was it the pink verbena? Oh, that was the plant. The other bird, you mean? Yeah, the, the streaked horned lark mm. is the bird we talk about. And then, yeah, the, the pink sand verbena. Verbena, yeah. yeah. Both are currently listed as threatened species. Mm-hmm. So you know, keeping that in mind, that there are these trade-offs, mm-hmm. right, where um, if, if, if one is so particular that the, the snowy plover is so particular about only nesting in these wide open sand dunes that used to be abundant pre-colonization. We have been slowly chipping away at that for the benefit of landowners on the coastline. Mm -hmm. So I I guess the value judgment, uh, what's that phrase? Where you sit depends on where you stand. Yeah. (laughs) Yeah, absolutely. And Sally's lab has done a lot of really interesting work about um, the ecosystem services So that's just like the benefits that people get from an ecosystem, Um, balancing the ecosystem services out on the coast. So we can think about balancing the benefit to humans of, you know, maintaining stabilized dunes with the benefits to biodiversity and snowy plovers of, you know, taking apart some of the dunes. And I think an amazing thing that's happening on the coast right now is that land managers are looking at those, that balance and deciding that in areas For example, like in areas where there's lots of people living, we should maintain stabilized dunes. But in areas that are sort of like sandy spits where there are no, you know, that are Mm -hmm. state parks where there's not people living, we can start removing some beach grass, reducing the density of beach grass and increasing the number of snowy plovers that that live there. So I think um, Willow Bay National Wildlife Refuge, the Ledbetter Point there, is a really great example of that. There's been great management happening out there to reduce the number, the density of the beach grass out there, and it has increased the snowy plover nesting habitat, and they're seeing increases in snowy plover. So I think you're right to point us to that balancing act, and I would say it's not even just balancing those two factors, but also thinking about how that changes along the coast. Mm. Yeah, all about the yeah unknown mm-hmm. consequences yeah. of anything. Mm-hmm. <laughs> um, can you tell us a little bit about how this hybrid is um, doing up against its two parent species? As it, yeah, do we know anything about that yet, or is that in the works? Yeah, that's a great question. I actually just last week finished disassembling an experiment at the Hatfield Marine Science Center that I hope will help answer that question about Mm. how does the hybrid interact with the parent species. So I planted a common garden, I called it a face-off experiment, (laughs) where I sort of pitted the grasses against one another and am in the process of going through those plants and seeing which ones fared better. So did the hybrid do really well even when it was growing with the parents and force the parents to be smaller or vice versa? Um, but yeah, we'll have some fun, exciting results from that soon, hopefully. Cool. Science still in the making. Exactly. <laughs> Always. 
for listeners just joining us, we're speaking to Rebecca Mostow talking about her work on dune grass. That is the common name, but also encompasses many grasses. Uh, it's prior usage as terraforming projects back in the 1960s all the way to today. It's connection to Dune the movie, which was a very fun connection. <laughs> But this isn't the first time you have been working on on grasses and grass species and its interaction with animals. You had prior experience working on a research project looking at both grasses and kind of its uh, implications with uh, with other animal species as well. Tell us about some prior research you did. Uh, are you thinking about my work at Oberlin? Yeah, that's what I was thinking of. Yeah, <laughs> desert plants. Yeah, yeah, the desert plant connection. Yeah, so... Um, I got my in into botany and plant science working with Dr. Michael Moore at Oberlin College in Ohio, where I studied um, plants that are endemic to the Chihuahuan Desert. Um, Talk about an inhospitable environment. Yeah, yeah. So I studied these plants that only grow on gypsum soils. They only grow on this one soil type. Um, And we were studying how they evolved, how these different species of plants had evolved to only grow on this very inhospitable soil type that most other plants don't like to grow on, um, and how the ability to grow on those weird soil types had actually evolved multiple times in several groups of plants. Yeah, so plant systematics in the desert. That was my start. And then you were hooked. Yeah. It, it, it was plants for you. It truly was. <laughs> I, I did not come to college thinking that I would study plants. I came with this idea that I was going to study neuroscience and linguistics. And then I took, I took Dr. Moore's um, plant systematics class my second term of college and I was fully hooked. He like couldn't get me to leave the greenhouse at the end of class. <laughs> and at the end of that year, he was like, hey, Rebecca, do you want to join my lab? Uh, and I called my mom right afterwards. Like, it's happening. I'm a botanist now. <laughs> <laughs> uh, uh, yeah. And I never looked back. I loved it. I've studied um, animals and I, I miss plants whenever I do it. I spend a lot of time like <laughs> thinking about their association with plants. And yeah. Nice. Something that you said earlier, which was like when you went on vacation in Washington, you were like, I will not look at yeah. the beach grass, but you did. I Yeah. Can you go to the beach and like not anymore? Can you no. do it? Yeah. No. Yeah. <laughs> yeah. I am. I'm like 95% sand at this point. Like my whole body is sand. My whole house is sand. My dog is made of sand. Uh, yeah. And I can't go to the beach without identifying the grasses. You are the human form of Arrakis walking yes. on earth. <laughs> yeah. I need a still suit for my workout on the dunes. A water tube. Yes. Uh. So I think this brings us towards the end of our episode. And when we conclude, we always have uh, two traditions. Um, You know, one tradition is to ask you for advice, uh, possibly a still suit to keep you stable in the shifting (laughs) times of grad school is if you can find a still suit, that'd be great. Yeah. Uh, But what advice do you have for, you know, yourself in the past, other undergraduates who are who, you know, are interested in pursuing kind of your path? Yeah, I think the best piece of advice that I got when I was starting to think about going to grad school actually came from Mike Moore, my undergrad advisor. And I love to pass it on whenever I get this question, which is if you're looking at grad school, um, spend a lot of time talking to the grad students at your prospective grad school. Those are the people who you're going to spend the most time with. Those are the people who you're going to learn the most from. Your relationship with your advisor is obviously really important. And there you got to put a lot of emphasis into that. But um, go to a school, go to a program where 
the students seem happy and where they're excited to talk to you. And um, that advice really has served me well. I have been had been really lucky with the lab mates that I've had here at Oregon State. Uh, yeah, and that would be my advice to anybody looking to grad school. What excellent advice to get as an undergraduate from your advisor. Yeah, yeah. I, I agree with that. Yeah. Um, the second tradition on the show is that you get to pick your outro song. Um, I almost feel like you maybe don't even know the title of what we've picked, but no. but tell us a little, tell the listeners a little about what we've generally picked and why. Yeah, I was hoping we could find like a uh, theme from the movie Dune. Uh, this Hans Zimmer soundtrack is a little ominous, so there's not like the Hedwig's theme that I was looking for. No. Uh, but yeah, we'll go out to one of the songs from Dune, the new movie. Adrian, what what did you end up picking? I think we had it between two and. Both had Arrakis in Both the title. Both had Arrakis in it, so how could we go wrong? <laughs> this is Night Night on Arrakis, the 10th song on the film score from Hans Zimmer. Rebecca, thank you so much for coming on the show. Uh, we really appreciated you coming on, especially on short on such short notice. Yeah, you're a trooper for on Friday agreeing to do this. Thank you so much. It's yeah. been a pleasure talking to you yeah, about your Yeah, thanks for having me on. And as a reminder, we'll be here every week talking to more graduate students about their science and research and personal stories. But for now, Rebecca, thank you again. And here is Night on Arrakis. Thank you for listening. If you want to support the show, tell your friends about it and give us a five-star review on Apple Podcasts and follow us on Twitter and Facebook at KBVRID. This theme music was performed by the OSU Drumline and the intro jingle was created by Olin Hamad. Special thanks to the supporting staff at KBVR that allow the show and podcast to be possible. This show was started by Jean Kamvar and Joey Hulbert in 2012. To learn about our current hosts, other graduate students at Oregon State, or if you want to be part of the show, visit our website at blogs.oregonstate.edu inspiration. Thanks again for listening, and stay curious, my friends. <laughs>